You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 92. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so much, as always, for your time and attention. We are done now with our series on Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents by Rod Dreher. I hope that was helpful to you. I hope it was edifying and it got you thinking. I hope it challenged you to start thinking about the way that you live your life, how you think about family, home, society, church, government. I think it's an important book, especially now. It's probably more relevant than ever. So I hope that, again, you enjoyed that series, and I hope that you pick up the book and read it all the way through for yourself. That being said then, reading through Live Not By Lies, both here on the Warrior Priest podcast and then on my other podcast, Banned Books, which is a hardcore theology podcast where we've been reading Live Not By Lies for a number of months now, four or five months. It has also, for myself as a pastor, motivated me to take a step back and think about my vocation, my church that I serve, the churches around me, their ministers, priests, and pastors, their congregations. When I interact with them, what do we discuss? What are their thoughts and feelings about what's happening in our society right now? What's happening in the churches? What's happening in our neighborhoods and our homes? And by and large, what I encounter is an absolute lack of motivation, moral courage, discipline, and hunger for the truth, for good, for justice. And as such, as a theologian of the church, as someone who has spent decades now studying, writing, recording, speaking on this topic... I thought it would be helpful for myself, and I hope then for you, to go back to my personal psychologist, who I meet with regularly to discuss these things. Uh, His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. He's been dead for a little while, which makes our conversations really one-sided more often than not. But I take great comfort from reading Nietzsche. He motivates me to think about my own presuppositions, my motivations, my intent. He challenges me to not become overly comfortable, to take my vocations for granted, to not become so arrogant and proud, overconfident, you could say, that I simply assume my view of things is right. And anyone who disagrees with me then is by default wrong. And I think it's important that when we read theology, philosophy, when we study history, we don't just go looking for those people who already affirm what we believe, or at the very least, keep us going in the same direction, following the same map. I think it is important to find those conversation partners from the past who will challenge you, who will force you to confront yourself, your presuppositions, your motivation, your intent, so that at a certain point, you come to the conclusion that all you know is that you don't know, you don't know anything. The more I study a particular topic, for example, like I said, it's been 30 years that I've been studying theology. At a certain point, you are well-versed in the subject, your discipline that you focus on, especially after three decades. You've surpassed the 10,000-hour rule. You've mastered the discipline. You know your stuff. You know what you're talking about. And so you, you draw a line and say, okay, I've kind of gotten to the point where I've read this over and over. I can anticipate where this person's going to go in their presentation or their speech. I know where this chapter is going to conclude. I've thought through these things for decades. I know where this is going. So you move on to something else and you refocus and you re, you re-educate yourself in a certain sense. You break everything back down and say, okay, what do I, what do I need to know about this topic that I'm interested in? What do I need to learn about this subject that I don't already know? And I think the older you get, if you possess that curiosity and you have that kind of imagination that's always seeking out 
new experiences, new adventures, different challenges, whether it be physically, emotionally, or intellectually. As you get older, it's easy to slip into, I don't know, I want to say like not cruise control, but you get to a certain age and you think to yourself, okay, I've been around the block a couple times. This isn't my first rodeo. I'm well-read. I'm well-traveled. I have many experiences to fall back on. Now what? Do you start looking down your nose at other people that don't have the same experiences, that are not as well-read, perhaps not as intelligent as you, not as creative or imaginative as you? Or do you recognize that that is arrogance, that is confirmation bias, that is idealism that judges others for not being in the same groove that you're in, driven by the same motivations that you are, seeking the same answers that you are, and instead ask the question, well, what are you interested in? Where are you going in your life? What are you curious about? What are you studying? What are you learning about? But what I've discovered with those questions is that for the most part, the answer is nothing. People at a certain age stop being curious. They allow their imagination to stagnate and their creativity with it. They don't go on adventures anymore. They take safe vacations. They don't challenge themselves. They don't enter into new relationships. They don't try different foods, new kinds of music, different genres of literature or art. They figure out what works for them, what they like, what gives them pleasure, what makes them feel comfortable and safe and secure. And then they just dial it in, tighten everything up, and they find their groove and they basically stay there for the rest of their life. And a big one then for me, and why I'm going to go and read from Nietzsche today, from his book, The Antichrist, is that's what I see from Christians. That's what I say, see especially from Christian leaders, religious leaders, is this overall sense of let's maintain the status quo. Let's preserve the institution no matter what, because that's really what's important here is the institution, whether it's the local church or the church governance at a regional or, or national or international level. It's keeping the seminaries open so that we can receive and train and graduate new seminarians to fill out the pulpits of those who are retiring. But everything is about perpetuating the institution, <clears throat> maintaining the status quo, as I said. And I think what this leads to, what I see when I interact with these people, is that they've embraced civil religion as if it's Christianity or civil religion as if it's Judaism or Islam or any other faith, but specifically the monotheistic faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as a consequence, this moralistic therapeutic deism now passes for, in my ecosystem, Christianity. So that when I question, which God do you believe in? Why are you not being specific? As Christians, we're very specific about which God we believe in. We call our God Father. We call our God Jesus, the Christ. We refer to the Holy Spirit as God in our confession, in our creeds. That's kind of fundamental to Christianity is to not be generic and abstract about God talk, but be specific about Jesus in particular. It's kind of the foundation of the Christian faith. Jesus died on Good Friday, rose from the dead on Resurrection Sunday, obviously referred to as Easter more often than not. It's kind of the fundamental building blocks for the Christian religion. Then you go to Judaism, they have some different building blocks. Islam, some different building blocks, but there's still that foundation, that fundamental basis from which all of the rest of their doctrine and piety proceeds from. But when you look at American civil religion that passes itself off as Christianity, as Judaism, as Islam, it's generic moralism. Be a good person. Don't be a bad person. It's therapeutic. Why are you in church? Why do you go to the synagogue? Why are you in the mosque today? So that I can feel good about myself again, so that I can get kind of a boost to my self-esteem, so that I can walk out of here feeling like I can breathe again, like I'm unburdened from my cares, that I know that God's going to take care of me and everything's going to work out for the best. So you have the moralism, be a good person. The therapeutic aspect of it, we just want you to feel good about yourself. It's not your fault. 
you're a victim of powers and people and things that are outside of your control. And it's deistic, meaning it's just a generic God. Pick a God, whichever God works for you, that's your God. It's the God of Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery is, you know, if this cup helps you stay sober today, then make that cup your God. So it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. It comes from the Enlightenment. It was an attempt to smooth over the, the, the repercussions of the 40 years war and so on. But Nietzsche comes along and he goes through the university to become a theologian, to become a pastor. And at some point during his university studies, he becomes disillusioned and he apostatizes, he renounces his faith. And he starts to form a critique of his professors, of pastors, of the church in Germany, in this Prussian ecosystem that he grows up in. And as I've told many people before, if I was alive and banging around when Nietzsche was, I'd be an atheist too. Because it's not Christianity that they're teaching at the seminaries. It's not Christianity that you're going to be hearing preached from the pulpit. It's not about Jesus, the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the renewal of life, the promise of the resurrection to eternal life. That's not what you're hearing. What you're hearing are moralistic, therapeutic, deistic messages, homilies, um, lectures. Be a good person. Feel good about yourself. Believe in God and you'll go to heaven when you die. And Nietzsche attacks this for not being Christian. In fact, for being a bastardization of Christianity. And as I've said, I've read the Antichrist several times, and I pretty much agree with his premise. I may disagree with some of the nuances of it, being a Christian myself, but being a former atheist who is now a Christian, I recognize in Nietzsche's complaint my own attacks on the church when I was a teenager, when I was in college. And so I want to read this to you today, perhaps to just help you formulate your own thoughts about what it is that bothers you about Christianity in particular, since I can speak to that with the most expertise. If you are a Christian, think about this and think about how Christianity has been presented to you. Is it moralistic therapeutic deism or is it actual biblical Christianity? Is it historic Christianity? that aligns with the creeds of the church and the doctrine of the church, going back to the first century, to Paul and Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples and apostles of Jesus. Because whether you believe or don't, whether you're a Christian or not, American civil religion has also been used for at least the past 100 plus years as a tool by the state to manipulate people, which goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the scriptures, read the prophets. The state uses religion to mollify the population, to keep them from revolting and rebelling. And we see the exact same thing today. Go listen to Dr. Peter McCullough on the Joe Rogan Experience. It was just the other day. I'm recording this December 15, 2021 for reference in the future. But go listen to Dr. Peter McCullough on the Joe Rogan Experience. He addresses that a majority, almost all of the major church leaders in America signed off on lockdowns, mask mandates, COVID uh, passes. They're engaging in pushing discrimination and segregation within their churches so that the vaccinated come, and then when they leave, the unvaccinated are allowed to come and worship. This should not be allowed to happen, especially in our churches. And they're hiding behind the name of God. They're hiding behind love of neighbor and love of God. They're hiding behind American civil religion to justify being useful idiots, being tools of the state. Why? Because their, their primary focus is to preserve the institution at all costs because the institution pays their bills. It's not grace that they're worried about, the state cutting off at the knees. It's the institution and the preservation of that institution that they worry about. That's why Moralistic therapeutic deism is so prevalent in the United States and why we have become essentially, at least within the churches, very, if not the same, it's like Mark Twain said, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme an awful lot. And what I see happening in the churches today in America, what I see happening in society today in America, is very similar to what was happening in Nietzsche's Germany 
in his generation in the 19th century. So I want to read to you then this critique that he forms of Christianity, which is a cultural Christianity, a civil religion, a German civil religion, because it's important. Because this German civil religion, the church working hand in glove with the state, the state using the religion as a tool to pacify the population and control the population, is what gave rise to the Bismarck, to World War I, and to the Nazis in World War II. So I think it's important to look at the seeds of what eventually became the atrocities of the first half of the 20th century, especially in Europe, but also in the United States. So this is from page 572, The Portable Nietzsche, edited and translated by Walter Kaufman, The Antichrist. Nietzsche writes, Christianity is called the religion of pity. Pity stands opposed to the tonic emotions, which heighten our vitality. It has a depressing effect. We are deprived of strength when we feel pity. That loss of strength which suffering as such inflicts on life is still further increased and multiplied by pity. Pity makes suffering contagious. Under certain circumstances, it may engender a total loss of life and vitality out of all proportion to the magnitude of the cause, as in the case of the death of the Nazarene. That is the first consideration, but there is a more important one. So from the very outset here, this is section 7 of the Antichrist that I'm starting with. From the very outset, what he's attacking is the primary teaching of Christianity at the time that he's banging around in Germany. And that is pity. We need to pity people. Not have sympathy for them, not be kind to them, not show charity to them, not forgive them, not lift them up and carry their burdens with them, not support them until they can stand on their own two feet again, not pray for them, not preach to them, not bring them in and care for them, but instead we pity them. And as soon as you pity someone, as he says, you deprive them of their strength. You steal strength from them so that they can't get up on their own because you've turned them into a victim of circumstance, a victim of other people, a victim of things outside of their control. And so they are pitiable, as if God himself pities them, as if God wants them to be victims of circumstance. And what happens then, he says, right? The loss of strength which suffering as such inflicts on life is still further increased and multiplied by pity. So not only do you become weaker the more you are pitied, the more you are cast as a victim, but you are actually going to increase the suffering in your life. It's going to be multiplied because you're being pitied and you're being told it's not your fault. You're being told there's nothing that you can do about this. You're to being told that other people are taking advantage of you, exploiting you. They're the ones hurting you. They're the ones you need to be mad at. That's pity. Oh, you poor thing. Who's done this to you? That's pity. Sympathy is, what can I do to help you? Tell me how I can help you. That's sympathy. Charity is, how can I help you get back on your feet? What do you need to get started? That's justice. But pity makes suffering contagious. So then what do people who are pitied talk about nonstop? Their suffering, their victimhood, their pitiable state. What do they not talk about? Their strengths, their gifts, their abilities, their optimism and hope about the future. Why? Because they've been told, you're pitiful, you're a victim. There's nothing you can do about that. But we can help you by pitying you by taking away your strength. Instead of getting you a job, we're just going to give you money. Instead of teaching you a trade, we're simply going to feed you for free and clothe you for free and house you for free. You don't worry about anything. We'll take care of you because you're a victim. You're pitiful. We can't expect you to stand up and walk and get a job and then get an apartment 
and then buy your own clothes and, and food and pay your own bills. That's impossible because you're a victim of circumstances outside of your control. And at the heart of that, in Nietzsche's day, the, the, the institution that pushed that the most and the most loudly was the church. So he says that's our first consideration, that the primary teaching of the Christianity of the, of the church, pity. And then they cast the Nazarene, they cast Jesus on the cross as the ultimate victim, even though Jesus chose to go to the cross and was obeying the will of his father, and therefore was not a victim because he wasn't passive, he was active. All the Greek verbs are active. So suppose we measure pity by the value of the reactions it usually produces. Then its perilous nature appears in an even brighter light. Quite in general, pity crosses the law of development, which is the law of selection. Pity preserves what is ripe for destruction. Pity defends those who have been disinherited and condemned by life and by the abundance of the failures of all kinds which it keeps alive. It gives life itself a gloomy and questionable aspect. Some have dared to call pity a virtue. In every noble ethic, it is considered a weakness. And as if this were not enough, it has been made the virtue, the basis and the source of all virtues. To be sure, and one should always keep this in mind, this was done by a philosophy that was nihilistic and had inscribed the negation of life upon its shield. Schopenhauer was consistent enough. Pity negates life and renders it more deserving of negation. The more you treat someone as a victim, the more deserving they are of that title. Remember when I talked in the jujitsu debrief about ego and brand and being careful you don't allow your brand to become your personality, how it defines the meaning of your life? When people are always pitying you, when they're always telling you, oh, poor you, what can I do to help you? And they're always giving you, giving you, giving you, never expecting anything in return, never placing the onus of responsibility back on you at any point. Stand up, figure it out. How can I help you get a job? How can I help you find an apartment? How can I help you pay the bills? Let's get you going on the right track so that you are self-sufficient. Instead, as he says, it's a nihilistic philosophy, this pity, because it leads to nothing. It's the negation of life. We were not made to be pitied. We were made for each other. We were made to serve each other in kindness and charity and justice. We're to carry each other when we fall down. But we are also to walk with each other when we can stand on our own two feet. We are meant to work together. We are not intended to take a certain group of people and say, no, 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 you sit down. You relax. You're a victim. There's nothing. This is out of your control. We got this. It's a negation of life. Pity negates life and renders it more deserving of negation itself. By pitying someone, you essentially negate their reason for being alive in the first place. Pity is the practice of nihilism, he writes. Pity is practicing nothingness. What do you believe in? Nothing. What do you hope for? Nothing. Everything is nothing. Pity is the practice of nihilism. I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in anyone. I have no hope. To repeat, he says, this depressive and contagious instinct crosses those instincts which aim at the preservation of life and at the enhancement of its value. It multiplies misery and conserves all that is miserable and is thus a prime instrument of the advancement of decadence. Pity persuades men to nothingness. Of course, one does not say nothingness, but beyond, or God, or true life, or nirvana, salvation, blessedness, whatever. Civil religion, moralistic, therapeutic deism, be a good person, feel good about yourself, believe in God. 
that isn't true religion. It's definitely not Christianity. It is nihilism wrapped up in a shiny, nice-sounding package. But at its heart, it is the negation of life itself. It is nothingness. You can call it God, you can call it heaven, you can call it true life, whatever you want to call it. It's nothing. It's sweet nothings. It's sugar-coated lies passing itself off as Christianity. This innocent rhetoric, he writes, from the realm of the religious moral idiosyncrasy appears much less innocent as soon as we realize which tendency it is that here shrouds itself in sublime words. Hostility against life. Pitying someone is hostility against life. You don't actually care about them. You pity them. They make you feel better about yourself. Helping them, quote-unquote helping them, which is really advancing their victimhood, advancing their sense of, I am a victim and there's nothing I can do about it. Showing pity for others. At root is so that we can feel better about ourselves, so that we can walk away and say, well, thank God I'm not like them. Or like the Pharisee and the tax collector in Jesus' parable, thank you, God, that I'm not like these people especially not that tax collector. The Pharisee stands in church without any humility, with absolute self-confidence, which is really just arrogance. Hostile to life. Hostile against life because he pities everyone around him and sees everyone as a victim. Schopenhauer, then, was hostile to life, Nietzsche writes. Therefore, pity became a virtue for him. I often attack the good Christian tag that is sometimes applied to myself and others, or being nice, as if being nice is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, when both couldn't be further from the truth. What does it even mean to be a good Christian? How are we defining good? What's the definition of good? And nice. What does that even mean? Nice. Be a nice Christian. We never stop to define these terms. We never stop to ask, what are we saying? And what are we saying about others when we use these terms? Well, in my experience, and in my conversations over the past 30 years, what we're saying is, I'm not a threat. I'm not a threat. I'm no danger to anybody. I'm just a nice, good, Bible-believing Christian. Right. Non-threatening, neutered, not biblical, actually. Passive, doormat Christianity, otherwise known as American civil religion, moralistic therapeutic deism. Be a good person, feel good about yourself, and make others feel good about themselves, and believe in God, and you'll go to heaven. The theological term for that is bullshit. It's not biblical, it's not doctrinal, it's not creedal, but it's been perpetuated for at least the last 250, 300 years. And really what it is, is an open attack against life itself, against the God of life. As Aristotle writes, considered pity a pathological and dangerous condition, which one would be well advised to attack now and then with a purge. We need to purge pity out of the churches. We need to purge pity out of our hearts, out of our homes, out of our neighborhoods. We need to get rid of it. It is an attack. It's hostility toward life. It's a negation of life. It's nihilism itself. So Aristotle, as is well known, considered pity a pathological and dangerous condition, which one would be well advised to attack now and then with a purge. He understood tragedy as a purge. From the standpoint of the instinct of life, a remedy certainly seems necessary for such a pathological and dangerous accumulation of pity, as is represented by the case of Schopenhauer, and unfortunately by our entire literary and artistic decadence, from St. Petersburg to Paris, from Tolstoy to Wagner, to puncture it and to make it burst. 
In our whole unhealthy modernity, there is nothing more unhealthy than Christian pity. To be physicians here, to be inexorable here, to wield the scalpel here, that is our part. That is our love of man. That is how we are philosophers, we Hyperboreans, which is a represent, uh, reference to the past and something that we don't need to go into today. But he's right, in my opinion. There needs to be a purge, and it will be a tragedy because society will implode. Institutions will disintegrate before our eyes. Those authorities and experts, those institutions which were once respected and honored, even worshipped, now people see them for what they are, monstrous, evil things who are intent on turning us into victims by way of American civil religion, by way of these institutions, these religious institutions and their leaders who care only about self-preservation in the name of God, of course. But we need a purge and one is coming. It's already here. It's been here for two years and it's been building ever since. Our society has been cleft in two by God. We now have discrimination and segregation at a cultural and social level. And most people are okay with that because they're pitiful and they're used to being pitied. They're used to being cast as the victim. They see themselves as the victims. And therefore, when the Pied Piper comes along and plays his tune, all the little mice dance. Because he promises them good times ahead while he walks them off a cliff. And so our society, at least in America, is going through a purge. It is the implosion, the disintegration of our nation. It is the end of the republic. It's the end of the church. And there is, unfortunately, nothing to lament because we did it to ourselves. It's our own unbelief and our own unrepentance. Our inability and our refusal to take a step back and take a sober look at ourselves and ask, are we still on the right path or have we gone astray? We brought pity back into the conversation and made it a virtue. We made spiritual cowardice a virtue because of it. And so there are a lot of church leaders, a lot of priests and pastors and ministers, a lot of Christians who hide behind their victimhood. Again, in the name of God. Who come to church every Sunday expecting a good, moral, therapeutic, deistic sermon. Who go to Bible study so that they can be asked, what do you think this means? How does this make you feel? It's all bullshit. It's all a lie. It's intent, preserve the institution at the state level, at the religious level, at the local level by mollifying and coddling the people or, to use Nietzsche's word, pitying them. So then section 8 of the Antichrist it is necessary to say whom we consider our antithesis then. Who is the opposite of us? Who is our joker to our Batman? It's the theologians. And whatever has theologians' blood in its veins. And that includes our whole philosophy. Because at this time when Nietzsche wrote this, all of these philosophers, they had gone through university. and Many of them had actually gone to university to become ordained pastors. And many of them actually did end up becoming ordained pastors and then leaving the church and becoming philosophers and teaching at the university. So there's a lot of people in the late 19th century who were openly hostile toward the Christian church because they had grown up in it and then gone to university with the intent of serving this church and then discovering in the manuscripts, in their study of the Bible and the original languages, much like Martin Luther did in the 1500s, that the church of their generation wasn't the Christian church they were reading about in the Bible or in the early church documents or in the Reformation documents. What they were reading was that the church had become 
this kind of bland, generic, self-help, prosperity gospel, as we would call it, kind of institution. Say whatever gets butts in the pews. Try and make everyone happy. Never be so defined or specific as to alienate anybody. Be a good person. Know that God loves you just the way you are. Believe in God. And of course, you have to belong to the church. And then you'll go to heaven when you die. So the theologians, those who propagate this teaching, this teaching of pity, this false virtue of pity, they are our antithesis then. Because they're the source. They're the wellspring for these teachings. They're the ones who prepare these young men to become pastors. So Nietzsche writes, whoever has seen this catastrophe at close range, or better yet been subjected to it and almost perished of it, will no longer consider it a joking matter. And remember, he went to university originally to become a pastor. So he knows this from the inside. The free thinking of our honorable natural scientists and physiologists is, to my mind, a joke. They lack passion in these matters. They do not suffer them as their passion and martyrdom. Meaning, they write what they write, they debate, they argue, they do all the things academics do. Why? Because that's what academics do and they're cash and checks. They don't really have any passion for what they're teaching or talking about. They're just doing it because it's an easy job. It's easy work. It pays well. You get tenured, you can kind of just punch your own ticket right into retirement. So there's no motivation for them to be passionate. There's no motivation for them to fall on their own sword for the sake of their cause. They're cashing the checks. This poisoning is much more extensive than is generally supposed. I have found the theologian's instinctive arrogance wherever anyone today considers himself an idealist, wherever a right is assumed on the basis of some higher origin to look at reality from a superior and foreign vantage point. Who is closest to God? Well, the theologians, of course. Who speaks for God? Who speaks the greatest truth? Well, of course, the theologians, because they're the most well-read and studied. They're the expert scholars in this field. So who knows better than the theologians what God is thinking and what he intends for us? The idealist, exactly like the priest, holds all of the great concepts in his hand. And not only in his hand, he plays them out with a benevolent contempt for the understanding, the senses, the honors, the good living, and the science. He considers all of that beneath him, as so many harmful and seductive forces over which the spirit hovers in a state of pure for its selfness, as if humility, chastity, poverty, or in one word, holiness, had not harmed life immeasurably more than any horror or vices. The pure spirit is the pure lie. Listen to me. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm telling the truth. No, listen to me. I have the Holy Spirit, and I'm telling the truth, and he's wrong. Well, they're both wrong because I actually have the Holy Spirit, and I'm telling you the truth. Who has the Spirit? Who speaks the truth? Well, the one who is humble and chaste who is probably poor materially, who is, in another word, holy. Where do you find these people in Nietzsche's Germany? Well, according to Nietzsche, you don't. <laughs> as long as the priest, and he's talking about the local priest, as long as the priest is considered a higher type of man, this professional negator, slanderer, and poisoner of life, there is no answer to the question. What is truth? For truth has been stood on its head when the conscious advocate of nothingness and negation is accepted as the representative of truth. The very advocate of nihilism, of the negation of life itself. And again, remember, in the Christian faith, according to John's Gospel, chapter 1, Jesus is life itself. He is the Word of God through which all things are created. All life is created. Jesus says in the same gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He claims for himself the title life. So when Nietzsche criticizes these people for being against life, ultimately he's saying they're against Jesus, the very people they claim to represent. These are not advocates for the true God. They're not advocates for the Holy Spirit. 
They're not advocates for their Savior, Jesus. Instead, they use those titles, they use those terms, they use that rhetoric in order to advocate nothingness and the negation of life itself, claiming that they represent, capital T, Jesus, the truth. Which is exactly what's happening today in the United States in our churches. Local clergy, regional religious leaders, national religious leaders, in the name of God, with all of their biblical doctrinal rhetoric, claiming that we all have to be vaccinated and that the vaccine is a gift from God. And that if we want to love our neighbors ourselves, then we must be vaccinated. And if we won't get vaccinated, then we must segregate in our churches between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. And then they claim that this is the truth because they are the authority. They are the experts. They know best because they're possessed by the Holy Spirit and they serve a higher authority. They are advocating for the truth. When in reality, to be blunt and overly simplistic, all they care about is keeping their job. All they care about is paying the bills. They're fat. They're lazy. They're morally cowards. All they care about is, as he puts it, its selfness, for its selfness. Why do they do what they do? For themselves. It is simply pure for its selfness. It's pure self serving advocacy for a truth that is not representative of God in any specific way. It is not representative of the Christian faith in any specific way. It's not representative of the Church of Christ in any specific way. What it is representative of is their nihilism and their negation of life. That's what he's attacking. That's what I'm attacking. Section 9, then. Against this theologian's instinct, I wage war. I have found its traces everywhere. Whoever has theologian's blood in his veins sees all things in a distorted and dishonest perspective to begin with. The pathos which develops out of this condition calls itself faith. Closing one's eyes to oneself, once and for all, lest one suffer the sight of incurable falsehood. This faulty perspective on all things is elevated into a morality, a virtue, a holiness. The good conscience is tied to faulty vision, and no other perspective is conceded any further. Value once one's own has been made sacrosanct with the names of God and redemption and eternity. There can be no concessions. There can be no compromise. There can be no recognition that I'm wrong. Because why? Well, because I serve God. Because I preach of redemption. Personal redemption. Because I point the way to eternity. And if you disagree with me, then you are an unholy mess. You are a heretic. You must be cast out and be made to sit in the darkness with the demons and all the other heretics who have disagreed with me. And this is my point that I started off with, is acknowledging as a Christian that what I know is that I know nothing, and that what theology is, in a nutshell, is when you hear that God wants nothing but your good, that he seeks for nothing except your good in body and life, and then asking the question, based on your own personal experience, well, if that's the case, if God promises me that he wants nothing but good for my life, that he will care for me all the days of my life into eternity, and yet I'm suffering in the here and now, and I'm afflicted, and I'm being abused, and I'm being hurt, and I'm being victimized. Well, how is that good? That's what theology is. It's demanding from God an answer to suffering and to the pain of life. And what Nietzsche is attacking then is that the answer that's coming from the church and the religious leaders and theologians in particular is, Oh, you poor thing. Let me, let me take care of that for you. You're a victim. You can't help yourself. Instead of leaning into life and recognizing that pain and suffering is a part of life, it's woven into the very fabric of life, 
It's actually woven into the fabric of redemption and the mechanisms of death and resurrection in the Christian faith. Instead of diving deep into the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, instead of diving deep into what it means to bear one's cross and to serve Christ in that way, to serve one's neighbor for the sake of Jesus, not pitying them, but rather serving them and loving them as Jesus serves and loves us, that negates pity. But what he's arguing here is that these priests and these theologians, they're leaning hard into pity. They want people to be rendered as victims. They want people to feel pitiful and vulnerable, weak. Why? Because then they're easy to predict, they're easy to control and manipulate. Keep the money coming. Keep the butts in the pews. I've lost count of how many people since I started in ministry 13 years ago, I've lost count of how many people ask how many people belong to my church and then judge me as a pastor based on my answer. As if the number of people in a building is somehow an accurate metric for faithfulness. When Jesus himself says in the Gospels, we will be reviled and cursed for his name. For worshiping him, we will be afflicted and tortured. We will be oppressed. We will be victimized. Not because we're pitiful, but because we're actively, openly, overtly preaching Jesus and being witnesses to his death and resurrection and being living examples of mercy and forgiveness and love. Once you get this backwards, once moralistic therapeutic deism infiltrates the churches, and Christianity in particular, then the message of pity and victimhood, nihilism and the negation of life will take complete control of a church because that's what's coming out of that black mirror in your living room every single day is how pitiful you are and how much you need the state to come in and rescue you and give you the answers and the solutions to all of your problems. Now we're going to ignore the fact that it's the state that primarily causes all of those problems. It's the Hegelian dialectic at work, we're not going to address the fact that the churches work hand in glove with the state to keep us pitiful. We're not going to address that. Instead, we're going to say, in the name of God, and in order to love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to do these things that the state tells us we must do. Even if it means closing our churches, even if it means closing our churches and no longer meeting in person, even though that is the very foundation of the definition of a church an assembly of believers in physical proximity to each other, exchanging a hand of peace, praying with each other, singing together, being preached to by a flesh and blood minister in the pulpit, coming forward and receiving real water in baptism and real bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, real concrete subjects, physical bodies located within reach of each other. That's the church. It always has been. It always will be. So to disembody the church, to put it on Zoom or Facebook Live, to tell people to stay in their cars in the parking lot so that the priest can come out and give you a special blessing or come to your home, this is an attack on the church itself by its own leaders who lack the moral courage and the fidelity to their calling to stand against the state And to say, no, you exist to protect the preaching of the gospel, not to shut it down. But instead, all those religious leaders and all those good Christians, all those nice people, they didn't demand that the church be open. They didn't demand that their pastors serve them in boldness. Instead, they sat at home and they felt sorry for themselves. And they realized, a lot of them, they didn't need to go to church to feel good about themselves or to feel bad. They didn't need to go to church to believe in a God, even if they named their God Jesus. They don't need to go to church to enjoy fellowship. They can get that other places. That's why the churches now are dying. The state shut them down. The religious leaders didn't push back. Many of them didn't. Mine did. Praise be to God for that. We actually sued the governor and the attorney general of my state for violating our religious liberties, and we won There's a lack of moral courage and a lack of fidelity to their calling, and it's rife within the churches. 
as a little rant on the side. Bear with me for a second. I need to get this off my chest. A majority of pastors and priests that I see are morbidly obese. They're fat. They're lazy, intellectually and physically. They're lazy. They're bad stewards of their body and their minds. So you have these fat, lazy cowards running the churches, and yet we expect them to be examples of faith and charity. We expect them to be examples of manhood when they're not even masculine. And they actually think, as Nietzsche points out, that their laziness and their obesity and their cowardice are virtues because they themselves use God's word to justify the fact that they're, well, fat, lazy, and cowards. And to those who are not, I praise you, I thank you, I encourage you, please keep on that path. Encourage your people to be good stewards of their body. Encourage them to always be curious and always be ready to learn more, to recognize we don't know anything when it comes to matters of God. And what we do know, we take on faith. But that's an active faith that actively listens and actively speaks because it hungers and thirsts for the righteousness and the justice that only God can give. So for those of you holding the line who are healthy and well and recognize what I'm saying to be the truth, thank you. Thank you for holding the line. And if I'm wrong, well, Lord have mercy on us all. The pathos, he writes, which develops out of this condition calls itself faith. Closing one's eyes to one's self once and for all, lest one suffer the sight of incurable falsehood. Wouldn't want to look in the mirror and see a liar now, would we? This faulty perspective on all things is elevated into a morality. It's good to be fat and lazy. It's good to be a coward. It's turned into a virtue. It's called holiness. The good conscience is tied to faulty vision. No other perspective is conceded. Any further value, once one's own, has been made sacrosanct with the names of God and redemption and eternity. I have dug up the theologian's instinct everywhere. It is the most widespread, really subterranean form of falsehood found on earth. Whatever a theologian feels to be true must be false. This is almost a criterion of truth. His most basic instinct of self-preservation, there it is, right there. His basic instinct of self-preservation forbids him to respect reality at any point or even to let it get a word in. That's the money shot right there. His most basic instinct, the theologians, the priests' most basic instinct is self-preservation, which forbids him from respecting reality at any point or even letting reality get a word in edgewise. Wherever the theologian's instinct extends, value judgments have been stood on their heads and the concepts of true and false are of necessity reversed. Whatever is most harmful to life is called true. Whatever elevates it, enhances, affirms, justifies it, whatever elevates it, makes it triumphant, we call that false. When theologians reach out for power through the conscience of princes huh, or of peoples, we need never doubt what really happens at bottom. The will to the end. The nihilistic will wants power. And there it is. That, at root, is what this is all about. Power. Who's got it? Who wants more of it? Who's willing to give away what little they have? When you attach the name of God to anything, you better be careful about what you're saying and doing. Because it's very easy in my experience, once you hide behind the name of God, to justify anything as history and personal experience has proven. Whatever a theologian feels to be true must be false. And whatever is false, he calls truth. He justifies it. He makes it triumphant. It's a virtue. So whatever elevates life or enhances life or affirms and justifies life and makes it into what it is, a God-given gift, that's false because that doesn't draw your attention to the priest, to the theologian, to the authority. It's like Dr. Anthony Fauci referring to himself as the science. To question me or disagree with me is to disagree with science. 
he actually equates himself with the word. That's just narcissism at its most basic level. He's not anything other than a little tyrant, a little nihilist, who gets paid to say what the state wants him to say. And because he's a good little soldier, he's a good, useful idiot, he's been on the payroll for over 40 years, highest paid federal employee in the government, Anthony Fauci, owns patents on over 100 different vaccines. And yet people follow his every word as if it's true, as if he's an actual authority. He hasn't even practiced medicine in over 40 years. He hasn't seen a patient in over 40 years. He's not a doctor. He's no more a doctor than I am. And I am a doctor. But you don't want me treating you for a heart attack if we're on an airplane. I'm just going to be able to teach you about the Reformation of the 16th century. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, though. Why do they do this? Why are they all about self-preservation and its selfness? Why are they all about calling the truth a lie and the lie truth? Why do they default to moralistic therapeutic deism rather than the tenets of the Christian faith? Power. They've got it. They want to maintain it. They want more of it. And this is how they got here. And so they just keep on keeping on. They find their groove, like I said earlier, and they just ride it out. So what can we do about it? Well, it's simple. Get up and walk out. Get up and walk out of church. Go find a church that'll preach the truth. Go find a pastor that'll pastor you in the Christian faith, not moralistic therapeutic deism, not some pastor whose only worry is about maintaining power over his congregation or over the churches, over people's consciences. Find a theologian of the church, find a pastor or a priest who cares about the truth and isn't afraid to preach it. Find a man who's humble, who has a strong sense of integrity and honor, who believes strongly in Christian freedom. Not just freedom as a generic American civil religious term, but real Christian freedom and how the Apostle Paul describes Christian freedom in his letters. Find a man who's curious, who's not afraid to engage in sanctified speculation, imagine different possibilities. Someone who knows that the future is open, who trusts in the promise of eternal life. Someone who is humble and chaste, who's not afraid to be seen as poor by the world. You know, someone who's holy. <laughs> There's nothing more horrifying to me than these fat, lazy cowards who are priests simply because it's an easy life and they don't have to then work for a living. They get a paycheck, they pay the bills, they enjoy a soft, coddled life. And if anybody dares question them, they just shout them down with their authority. That is the antithesis of life itself. That's the antithesis of what the Bible teaches about God. It's the antithesis of what the Bible teaches about God's servants. And to remember, as Aristotle is as well known, uh, sorry about that, Aristotle, as is well known, considered pity a pathological and dangerous condition, which one would be well advised to attack now and then with a purge. Tragedy is that purge. If your priest doesn't preach the gospel, if he doesn't make the sacraments of the church the thing, if he doesn't lean hard into Christian freedom, which comes through the forgiveness of sins and life and salvation, in Jesus' name, Kick the dust off your feet and leave that church. Encourage others to leave that church. Go find a pastor or a priest. Go find a congregation where the truth is spoken, where the pastor is not afraid to say, I don't know, or you know what, I was wrong, and I got I to gotta come back around and I got to fix what I did. That wasn't, that wasn't right. I was wrong. I was off base there. I answered the wrong way or didn't have all the information. And then I went and looked and turns out you were right. I apologize. Forgive me but also a man. <laughs> Find a pastor or a priest who's an actual man, who's actually masculine, who is strong and self-disciplined and practices self-control and is healthy in mind, body, and soul. Someone who's a good steward of the gifts that God has given him. He's still a sinner. He's still someone who fails every day, more ways than you can possibly imagine. 
which is why he needs your prayers and forgiveness too. He needs your kindness, but he also needs your encouragement. He needs you to communicate with him and keep those lines of communication open to hold him accountable for what he preaches and teaches to you. Just because he's your pastor or your priest doesn't give him carte blanche to just do or say whatever he feels. That's not the office. That's not our vocation. We need to stop allowing authorities to run roughshod with the truth because they are, as Nietzsche notes, nihilists. They are hostile toward life itself because all they care about is self-preservation and the preservation of their little institution, their little corner office of the world that they can control. We need to tear them down. We need to rebel and reject them. We need to put them on notice. This is the purge. And we're doing it because as faithful Christians, we recognize that God is calling us to repent for our unbelief, for our spiritual cowardice, that we don't stand up to the state, that we didn't keep our doors open, that we didn't push back against the mandates and the COVID passes. We didn't push back against totalitarianism when it came to us. Instead, we accepted it quietly for the sake of our jobs, our paychecks, the status quo, and keeping the peace. No. For those who are hostile against life, for those who call the truth a lie and the lie is truth, for those who are useful idiots for the state, for those who squash the gospel of Jesus Christ, for some other moralistic, therapeutic message about some abstract God figure. Reject them. Purge the churches. Purge the theologians. Purge the seminaries. Purge the institution until at last something else can be built up in its place. Nothing is forever except God. We need to remember that. Otherwise, we fall victim to manipulation by these authorities, these theologians in particular. And as Nietzsche says, it is, against, it is against these theologians that I wage war. And this instinct of pity, this nihilistic hostility toward life, I oppose it all because I serve life. I'm an advocate for life and for Christian freedom and for forgiveness and charity and kindness, but also an advocate for what the Bible also teaches, which is the call from our God to fight. To fight against those who would shut down the churches and close the mouth of the gospel preachers. Who would shut down our altars so that we may not serve our people. Shut down our communities so that we may not walk with our people in their lives. We must not allow ourselves to be defeated by those who are hostile to the very fundament, the very foundation of the Christian faith. Instead, we must rebel against them. We must correct them. We must walk with them and encourage them to repent. We must scold them if necessary. We must debate them. But ultimately, if they refuse to hear because of their hubris and their arrogance, because they claim sole authority over God's word. We must kick the dust off our feet. We must leave and pray that God would lead us to good and faithful men who will preach the truth to us and who will walk with us in the truth with integrity and moral courage and call a thing what it is in truth. Otherwise, yeah, we are the most to be pitied, to quote the Apostle Paul. So that was a little bit of a digression today, yet if you've been following along with the Live Not By Lies series, it's kind of a capstone to it too, because we talked a lot about, you know, a manual for Christian dissidents and the things that, like the Benda family, for example, what they went through, being devout Christians, not being able to find other Christians necessarily that would want to work with them, and therefore they had to seek others outside the church to work with, to bring about the end of communism and to fight back against this. The people in the Benda's church were hostile toward what they were doing. And it's the same today. So what are we going to do? Well, we must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We must not be afraid to speak the truth publicly. 
to stand up for the truth, to push back against all of the messages coming from the state, from corporate journalists, from celebrity, from cultural influencers. We got to push back. We got to call it what it is. Godless tyranny, communism, totalitarianism, medical apartheid, segregation, discrimination, anti-Christian behavior in the churches. We got to call it out. That's the way of repentance. That's the way of active faith. It's the way of the gospel. We got to preach the truth. Otherwise, the truth will abandon us. And then, as I said, to quote the Apostle Paul, we are the most to be pitied because that is not a, that is not a bright future. That is not an open future for us. That is a very bleak, dark, closed future. And so I do my part to fight back against it. I hope that you will too. So to wrap it up then, again, I have hoodies available, available for pre-sale. Um, it says Warrior Priest Gym and Podcast on the hoodie. I'll post pictures of it uh, on the website with the show notes. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram at Warrior Priest Gym and Podcast or Donovan Riley Warrior Priest. Follow me, DM me for, you know, pricing, sizing, all that stuff. Um, but they're great hoodies. They're white hoodies with, I redesigned my logo, everything. So I'll have that up so you can see it. But please think about supporting me, supporting the podcast, supporting the gym more than anything. And uh, buy a hoodie, buy two hoodies. I tell you what, I'll make you a deal right now. If you buy two hoodies, I'll pay for shipping and handling. All right? So go check out Anchor FM. Go check out uh, WordPress, where the Warrior Priest podcast at thewordpress.com. I'll post pictures of the hoodies. Contact me about pre-ordering them. You can email me through Anchor FM and through the website about that and getting more information. For the hoodies, whoever bought me tea, thank you. I appreciate it. Truly, I do. Merry Christmas to you as well. Otherwise, I will talk to all of you very soon for a brand new episode. See you later, Space Monkeys. Peace.